Mark 1, 1, we read these first three verses last week. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So the beginning of the good news is the coming of a prophetic voice, a messenger. This unnamed voice is prophetically announced hundreds of years in advance by the other or by the prophets Malachi and Isaiah. This one is named by Mark in verse four. And by the other gospel writers, they're unanimous in their identification as John, further identified as the one who baptizes for repentance. John is identical, or I'm sorry, is identified later in Mark's gospel with the ministry of the prophet Elijah, as spoken of in Malachi chapter 4. Let's look at Malachi 4. Verses 1 through 6, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. And then he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Of course, Elijah had been off the scene for quite some many years. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This is obviously speaking of the second coming of the Lord. But the first century Jews were not clear on this point. They only read of the coming of the Messiah in both his capacities, and they expected one who would come, resulting in the establishment of the kingdom of God the millennium as we know it, uh, at that time. You recall in Acts chapter 1, if we go there, the first portion, uh, beginning in verse 1, he says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, this is Luke writing, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We're going to see this in the context of John the Baptist's ministry. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, his apostles asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were expecting that this was the time to set up the kingdom, and somebody was going to sit on his right hand, and somebody was going to sit on his left hand. They were anxious to find out who this was, (laughs) because you know, a couple of guys requested that they be the ones. 
And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now, some people try to discount all prophecy of, you know, the coming of the Lord with, with this phrase. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, oh, it's not important. He's saying, this is not the time for that. You know, when the, when the time's right, then the Father's going to bring it about. But, and he gives them here their assignment then, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus does not correct them, saying, No, guys, the kingdom of Israel is out. The Jews have forfeited all the promises of Abraham, and they are now fulfilled in the church. He doesn't say, Don't you remember what they did to me 40 days ago? I'm done with that whole program. But Jesus died for them the same as he died for everyone else. Yet many are saying this today, that God is done with the nation of Israel. God's done with the Jews. God, however, is very clear that he will fully complete all that he has promised to national Israel. And the church is not Israel, nor has it replaced Israel in God's plan. Believing Jew and Gentile, those of the faith of Abraham, are partakers of the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah by name. And over in Jeremiah chapter 31, if you would turn there, uh, verse 31, says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And we know when Jesus came, he says, This is the new covenant in my blood. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, In the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And some of the nation of Israel entered into this covenant with Jesus. Most rejected it, but this will be fulfilled for the entire nation at some point. And we get included. We're like these uh, wild branches that are grafted in. So we get to be part of this whole new covenant. Well, in verse 35, then he goes on, Jeremiah goes on to say, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. This is as if the Lord knows that the continuance of his promises to Israel will be questioned when the new covenant is instituted. I think he must have known that. Thus says the Lord, he emphasizes again, if heaven can be above can be measured. Some people think they've measured it now. And the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. We still don't know what's down there, you know, in the very bottom. We got theories. He says, if, if heaven can be measured, the foundation of the earth searched out, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Garib. Then it shall turn toward Goeth. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. Now, some people might think, well, that happened, you know, when they returned from Babylonian captivity. But the Lord says, it shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. So this hasn't happened yet. There might have been a, a minor fulfillment, you know, in the restoration of Israel. But when this takes place, it's going to be permanent. That kingdom is going to be established. Well, lest we think that there is no future for the physical descendants of Abraham, we are told of the nation's restoration and glory in the Old Testament prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, etc. And we're told about it in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25, Paul's speaking in these chapters 9 through 11 of Israel. And he says here in verse 25 of Romans 11, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he'd already talked about them not boasting against the root because the root sustains them. They don't sustain the root. And thinking that the Gentiles think somehow, Oh, well, yeah, we're better than Israel because, you know, we got grace and we received the new covenant and the gospel. And as many people look upon it today, blindness in part, part of the nation is blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And people are always wondering who that last Gentile is going to be, you know. Okay, it's full because then there's no reason for the church to be continuing on the earth. Could be a few Jews after that. But he goes on to say here in verse 26, So all Israel will be saved. All Israel at that day, at that time, will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with him when I take away their sins. He says then, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. Paul understood there was persecution from the Jewish nation upon the church. But he says, concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Oh, they're still elect, huh? Concerning this election. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. It's an unconditional promise. He follows through with it. And that's the promise he made to Abraham. He says, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And then Paul can't contain this thought anymore, and he just breaks out into spontaneous praise and worship for the Lord. And and, uh, at the end of this letter of Romans, we find that Tertius is the scribe who wrote this uh, letter for Paul. I imagine he had a hard time keeping up here when he started crying. It was Paul's, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. 
For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Well, John the Baptist is spoken of as coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. You know, he was asked on occasion, occasion, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. But he was described as coming in the role of Elijah, if you will. Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. Uh, This is um, shortly after the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're discussing John the Baptist and Elijah. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Hey, you know, if you're the Messiah, Elijah was supposed to be here before you. And Jesus answers and says to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Future tense. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. Past tense. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, note, this is right after the Mount of Transfiguration. They'd just seen Elijah with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they recognized who they were. I've heard Chuck Smith talk about sometimes people will ask the question, will we know each other in heaven? You know, and he said, Besides this, you know, they knew these guys. They didn't even, hadn't seen them before, but they knew who they were. And he makes a statement, something like, you think we're going to be dumber in heaven than we are now? (laughs) (laughs) So Jesus speaks here of John the Baptist figuratively as Elijah, who is to come. And he, he, he portrayed that role as the forerunner. But Elijah is coming before the second coming of the Lord. I think that will be actually Elijah. Over in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, this angel Gabriel speaking to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, the angel says, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, Zacharias didn't quite believe this at first, you know good message. I mean, you're standing in the temple and burning incense and somebody is in there and they're talking to you and they're saying they, you know, Gabriel. I don't know. In verse 15 it says, He, John, will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So here he is filled with the Spirit right from his mother's womb. Um, not drinking wine or strong drink. Uh, anything from the vine is uh, a mark of a Nazarite vow, but it doesn't mention whether he has his hair cut or not. That was another thing. You know, they weren't to cut their hair. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is Gabriel speaking. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And this is the role of John the Baptist at the first coming, preparing a people for the coming of the Lord. And so we come to verse 4 of Mark 1. All that was just extra, kind of a little diversion. 
where it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So John came, a voice proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of heaven, as we read in Matthew 3, 2, that it is at hand, very near. Where the king is, there is the kingdom. But Jesus also said that his kingdom is not of this world, that is, not yet, John eighteen thirty six. But the day is coming very soon when the kingdom will be restored to Israel and Jesus will reign as king over all the earth from Jerusalem and those who follow him will rule with him. Then the prayer will be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, John comes with a purpose and his purpose is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord as his father Zacharias prophesied. He came baptizing in the wilderness. The Greek word is baptizo. This word was not translated, but it was transliterated into English by our translators. A few translations do call it immersion or dunking in plain English, putting underwater. But baptism has become a word that has its own meaning in English. A secondary meaning of the Greek was simply to wash. But the English definition reads, at least one, reads, a religious rite considered a sacrament by most Christian groups marked by the symbolic application of water to the head or immersion of the body into water and resulting in admission of the recipient into the community of Christians. Well, John clearly immersed those who came to him at the Jordan River and the scriptures define Christian baptism as immersion. See Romans 6 and Colossians 2 that speak of being buried with Jesus in baptism. No one gets buried by having some dirt applied to their forehead. You know, you see depictions sometimes in films or in in, uh, pictures of John and Jesus, and they're in the Jordan River, but, you know, Jesus is kneeling down or bowing down, and John's cupping water and putting it on his, his head, you know. That's not the way John baptized people. The main biblical problem with applying water to the head is that it is a ritual performed on infants. But as John indicates, this is a baptism signifying repentance. And a baby has no need of repentance since they are not personally guilty before God. They inherit the sin nature of Adam, which is on display early in life. But a person must have an awareness of sin and their need for God's forgiveness in order to repent. Uh, some uh, Christian traditions say that it washes away original sin, this baptism of the infant. I don't find any scripture that indicates that. Baptism itself is not a washing away of sin. We should dedicate or commit our children to the Lord, but we should not change the significance of baptism. An infant baptized is not an infant saved. That is inconsistent with the meaning of Christian salvation and very consistent with the Jewish view of circumcision. They began to think that, oh, well, my child is born, he's circumcised, he's, he's a shoe-in. And many people have considered this also with, with an infant. Now, none of this is to say that your friend who was sprinkled cannot be a true Christian. Baptism does not save anyone, although it is important. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is the person that I am to be obedient to in this new spiritual life. 
The purpose of John's baptism in itself is given as repentance for the remission of sins. Baptism was not unknown in the days of John and Jesus. The Jews performed, and some still perform, baptisms for ritual cleansing in water depositories called mikvahs. This is a ritual immersion for ceremonial cleansing. Under the law of Moses, anyone who became defiled or unclean would be required to wash themselves and be unclean until a certain set time, often until evening or a seven-day period, depending on the offense, and then to offer a sacrifice for their cleansing. These wealthy people in Jerusalem would often have mikvahs in their homes, just dug out of the rock. But John's baptism was unique. It was not to provide a ritual cleansing, but to signify a person's repentance of sin. It had a view to the coming remission or forgiveness of sin. Remission is a release from bondage or imprisonment. In preparing a people made ready for the Lord, a repentance and forsaking of sin was a key ingredient. It was the heart that needed preparation, as is the continuing case today. It is the heart that God is interested in, not someone getting wet, nor any outward expression that is not consistent with the internal motivation. So John preached repentance, as did Jesus also. We'll see this coming. Repentance is a requirement if one is to come to Jesus for salvation. Truly coming to Jesus without repentance is an impossibility. Repentance is not a work for righteousness. It is an inherent component of what it means to believe, to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus. Repentance is often thought of as separate from faith, but it is not. It is a component of genuine faith. If I believe in the Lord Jesus, I have a change of mind toward him. We'll see that definition. And a true change of mind or heart produces a change in behavior. The literal meaning of repentance is to have a change of mind. Repentance, metanoia, the definition, is a change of mind as it appears to one who repents of a purpose he has formed or of something he has done. The word to repent is metanoeo. metanoeo, That means to change one's mind. That is to repent. To change one's mind for better heartily to amend with an abhorrence of one's past sins. That's this change of mind that results in a change in living one's life. God's call to the sinner is a call of repentance. If we see Mark chapter 2, if we look over there, verse 16, it says, When the scribes and Pharisees saw him, Jesus, eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats? and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, like you guys, no doubt, who are, but those who are sick have need of a physician. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's the call of God to the sinner, a call to repentance. Repentance is an invitation to a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of life. Repentance does not end with conversion. There is initial repentance for the unbeliever and a continuing need for repentance for the believer since we are not yet perfected. 
The result of repentance for the unbeliever is a turning from sin and to the Lord. The result of repentance for the believer who has drifted away from clinging to and walking with the Lord is a turning away from sin or complacency or self-sufficiency and a return to the Lord. And when Jesus wrote his seven letters to the churches in Asia in the book of Revelation, five of those messages called upon the church to repent. Five of the seven. Two, he didn't say that to them. Philadelphia and was it Smyrna? The suffering church. I don't remember exactly which that was. Repentance is vital for any people of the Lord. Peter tells us that the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. 1 Peter 4.17 And boy, has that time come. But if we will judge ourselves, repenting of that which has need, then we will not be judged by our God, as we read concerning communion, 1 Corinthians 11.31. If we will not judge ourselves, we will be judged by the Lord. But in chastisement, as a child of God, not as an enemy, if we are indeed his child. So John comes preaching a message of repentance, baptizing those who respond. John was not sent to a pagan nation preaching repentance. He was sent to the nation of Israel. The majority of Old Testament prophets, although they had messages for other nations, were sent to the nation of Israel. And their message was often repentance and a return to the Lord because the people had departed from the true worship of Yahweh and had turned to other gods. This was the state of the nation at the coming of John and at the coming of the Messiah. There was a remnant of true believers and there was also much religiosity without true faith or true worship. Israel no longer worshipped man-made idols, but they still had their other gods. So the call to God's chosen people was a call to repentance. Most believed that they did not need to repent. That was for the Gentiles, those horrible sinners. Those who were baptized in repentance were admitting that they were in the same position as the ungodly Gentiles. You can see what an offensive message John's message would have been to many of these Jews. Oh, he's treating us like those unclean Gentiles. This would have been considered by many a scandal treating the descendants of Abraham just as Gentiles were treated. But they were in the same position with the same needs. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 through 18, we see the result of repentance. Um, Paul is speaking in the context of Moses and the law and the fact that as the law is read, there's a veil over the face of the people. They don't understand what is required. In verse 16, he says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So this is the result of repentance. You turn to the Lord in repentance. The veil is taken away. Understanding has come. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The veil's removed. Understanding has come as to who Jesus is and who we are. Repentance is not a one-time action. 
Because our mind, our mindset has changed, we abide in a place of repentance. We are dependent upon the Lord for righteousness. We are dependent upon the Lord for freedom from the power of sin. We are dependent upon the Lord for transformation into his image, as is spoken of here. And we abide in a repentant mindset. Someone has said, the more I go on with the Lord, the less I sin, and the more I repent. We sin less in gross terms, but we see more clearly our need of the Lord for any good to come from our life. And we experience more sharply the pain of failure when we know that we've displeased the Lord. We abide in this place of repentance because we are never free from sin in this life. Now, the potential is there. The Lord has made provision. He has said, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 6.14 But we continue to fall short of God's glory. The flesh strives against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And you don't always do what you wish, or wish you had done. Galatians 5.17 So we are not to become complacent, giving up the fight, and settling into an acceptance of the fleshly position. We are not to become nonchalant about sin. In our life, we are called to non-nonchalance. We are called to fight the good fight, 1 Timothy 6.12. We follow Paul in pressing on toward the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus, not bogged down by memories of past failures or triumphs, but looking ahead to the glory that the Lord has promised us in Christ Jesus, laying hold on that for which the Lord has laid hold of us. Philippians 3, 12 through 14, paraphrased. So when a heart turns to the Lord, he's willing and able to forgive. This is his desire. In fact, his invitation is always open for all to come to him for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. Matthew chapter 11, which you know well, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In John 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus tells the Jews, the Pharisees, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Is there a catch? Yes. You must come to him. It's a surrender. You come empty-handed with no merits on your side of the board. He is Lord. Life is found in him and in relationship with him. It's not available anywhere else. You give up your life for his life. You cannot maintain one while trying to obtain the other. You place your life Fully in his hand. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Feast of Tabernacles, it says, on, that, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Anyone. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Not until after the resurrection was this uh, spirit uh, given in the sense that he's speaking about here. Back in Isaiah chapter 55, the God of the Old Testament, this you know supposedly horrible God in comparison with Jesus, who was so loving, meek, and mild. Isaiah 55, verse 1, he says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? People looking in all sorts of places for satisfaction, spending big money to try and find it but it won't come. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what's good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Come freely. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. We drop down to verse 6. We're told, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That's repentance. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The Lord offers this freely at the cost to himself of the crucifixion of his own son for sin. He offers it freely because you can't afford it. You don't deserve it. You can't produce it. But if you come to him, he gives the water of life freely. We look at Mark 1, verse 5. It says, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, John, and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John in the wilderness becomes very popular. He was the end thing. Do you remember the end thing? I'm so old, I don't remember what the end thing was. I'm no longer hip, but I might throw a hip out if I try to be hip. But John was hip. It says, all in the land of Judea and from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him. doesn't say they all had the correct motivation in doing so. The tense indicates there was a steady stream of people going out to John in the wilderness. It just continued. All in the land of Judea and from Jerusalem. That's a lot of people. There are some very high estimates of the number of people baptized by John. The highest I saw was about 500,000. That's a lot. I don't know if I could go imagine going that high. We know the day and the time. But that's a lot of tour caravans. That's the old version of tour buses. You know, you, you know, I could see the camel vendors out there. You know, the guys leading a caravan of camels out there and saying, come on, we're going down to where John's baptizing. Get your camel. You know, and probably 10 denarii or something. I don't think John had a tally board at the Jordan River. 10,000 baptized. 3,000 baptized this week. Those who were baptized confessed their sins. They acknowledged that they were sinners in need of forgiveness. So John was, for some folks, a tourist attraction. You can imagine. There was not a lot of entertainment. Along comes a guy who dresses funny, as we'll see in the next verse. Eats a weird diet. I mean, people today eat the Daniel diet. The 
Maker's diet, the Ezekiel diet, although I don't think they use dung for fuel anymore with the Ezekiel diet. But nobody eats the JB diet, at least nobody around here. There are some people who still still eat the John the Baptist diet. So he comes, he looks funny, he eats funny, and he preaches about sin and repentance. He preaches about getting your heart ready to receive the one who is coming after him. It's an oddity to be checked out. To some, he was an irritant. To some, he was the messenger of God. I'm sure there were many mockers among the crowd, a, a, brood of bripe, a brood of vipers, so to speak, as John called them on occasion. Later on, Jesus speaks to the attraction of John. It's when John's doubting if he had gotten it right. We'll find it over in Luke chapter 7, verse 19. It says, John, calling two of it, John's in prison, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one or, or are we to look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? I mean, he had been commissioned directly by the Lord with this message, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way. Well, maybe I was preparing the way, but I got the wrong wrong guy. But he, he even saw the sign, right? The dove came down, rested upon him, remained upon him. But he began to doubt. I mean, this is not supposed to happen. The kingdom's supposed to be set up. I'm not supposed to be in prison. So, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And at that very hour, Jesus cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. And he answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you've seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to him, to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And what were they going out there for? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? You went out to see this frail creature that was, you know, you're going to mock and would be destroyed. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? He wasn't clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's court. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. You know, later on when Jesus was challenged as to his authority, he cleansed the temple. And the Pharisees came and said, what authority are you doing this? Jesus asked them the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? And they couldn't answer him because either way they were going to get in trouble. So he says, I say to you more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will, will prepare your way before you. So Jesus is saying, this prophecy is about John preparing a way for me. That's what Jesus is saying here. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John the Baptist came in the Old Testament prophet's mode. Those who become believers, the least in the kingdom of God, greater than the Old Testament situation. In verse 6, we're told, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John dressed like Elijah, but he had his own unique diet. 
Camel's hair garments were scratchy and uncomfortable. This was not the woven camel's hair garments that you can buy today, like the you know camel hair coats, jackets, slacks. This was a camel's hide or skin with hair still attached to it. Stiff, but cheap. Not embroidered with his name on the pocket. <laughs> the leather belt would hold it closer to the body. One says it's a scratchy cloak of camel's hair and it's still worn by desert Bedouins. John did not come to live a comfortable life. His diet is not one of the popular biblical diets. But the Dead Sea Scrolls include instructions on eating locusts. I guess how to put, you know, you have locust recipes. Eh? Locusts would be grasshopper type creatures. The legs can get stuck in your teeth. I don't know if, you, if they eat the legs. Probably good. They're probably good. But John would have eaten the clean among the insects, and there were only a few. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 21 tells us what these are. He says, Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all, four, all fours, those which, you, those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. So grasshoppers and things like that. I think the things we call locusts don't have those hopping legs. They're the ones that attach themselves to trees and leave the husk there as they crawl out. These you may eat, verse 22, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind. I think one version says the bald locust. The cricket after its kind. I've never been, you know, had an appetite for crickets. I don't know. And the grasshopper after its kind. But he says, but all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Now Moses gets into trouble with the skeptics here for his language because he talks about them going on all four or four feet. And we know insects have six legs, right? But this is, you know, insect is an English word. It's not the word that's used here. Uh, we don't have any reason to think that Moses' classification of living creatures should match our own. But his description of what they can eat is very clear. Four, four walking legs, two leaping legs. Normally this is uh, well, I think King James translates it as creeping things. And the Hebrew word literally means teeming or swarming things. Creepers or swarmers. Doesn't sound like appetizing thing to me. I don't know. We go out to lunch today, maybe we'll go to the creeping swarming buffet or something. Anyway, the bottom line here is these are bugs. <laughs> John the Baptist ate bugs and honey. Uh, doesn't say that's the only thing he ate, but that was probably the main staple of his diet. They were, they would, pardon? Hamburger, yeah. <laughs> so, um, they would be roasted more than likely and then dipped in honey, like honey in the rock. You know, John's out in the wilderness. The, the bees made their combs in the rock. And uh, they, there are still better ones that make their living by harvesting honey from the rocks out there today. Or maybe he dipped it in hummus. But these bugs are still a delicacy in many parts of the world. You can find them in the marketplace, you know, roasted, and you can buy them there and snack on them. Did you see any in Jerusalem when you were there? No, I've had honey pumps several times. Yeah. Yeah. No bugs. I'm just taking their word for it. I haven't been there. But apparently they're still a delicacy in many parts of the world. It's great protein. 
this was John's diet. He may have eaten other things, but these are the staples of his diet. Now, I might mention there are those who advocate eating bugs today as a means of saving the planet from climate change. They give up the cows and the pigs and stuff and, and they eat the bugs. The effects of climate change are another exaggerated hopes by which to control populations struck with fear. And fear-mongering is very prevalent in our day. But if you feel the need to save the planet, you may want to stock up on bugs and honey. God's concerned about saving humanity, but he's not concerned about saving the planet. The planet is doomed to destruction at the hand of God to be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. This doesn't mean that we should abuse the creation in any sense, but that's not the focus of our commission as believers in the Lord Jesus. Seek to bring the salvation message to people. Seeking to save the planet is doomed to failure and a distraction from the task at hand. If Satan can't take you out, he will seek to distract you from focusing on the main thing. Social gospel is a distraction from the gospel. Our commission is to take the gospel to the world of unbelievers, to sow the seed. So we come to verse 7 where it says, John preached saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. This is one of whom there is no one greater born among women, and he declares his unworthiness to carry out the lowliest task in the household, which was to be done by the lowest servant in the household. The Jewish Talmud says that the one who did the footwork in the household could not be Jewish unless he was a slave. This work was done by the lowliest servant in the household. So John is saying he's not worthy of the lowliest position. This is the person God uses. John could have had all that the world could give. Think about how popular he became. He was extremely popular among many people. But he had only one task and one direction to proclaim the worthiness of the one who would come after him. And when his task was completed... His life was ended. This is the only correct message for someone who would preach the gospel or teach the Bible or follow and serve the master. Someone rightly said, Spirit-filled preaching always exalts the Lord Jesus and dethrones self. One source I quote, in biblical times, it was prescribed that the host of a banquet was to provide water and a basin so that his guests could wash their hands before sitting down to table. (coughs) Although a host might also provide water for travelers to wash their own feet before they entered the house, the host himself would not wash the feet of his guests. According to the Talmud, the washing of feet was forbidden to any Jew except those in slavery And Gentiles were to be used for this task. Well, John's main message wasn't, you're a sinner, you need to repent. John's main message was, the Messiah is coming, you need to prepare yourself to meet him. The call to repentance was the response to the news that Messiah was coming. Without the Messiah, you could repent all you wanted, but it would not make a difference. It would all be in vain. So the people needed to prepare themselves for the coming of Messiah. Get your hearts ready. 
The repentance was for the purpose of being prepared for his arrival. And this is the case for his people in regard to the fact that he's coming again. When he comes back, will we be ready to meet him? We are exhorted over and over to watch and be ready. Back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John exhorts and says, Now little children, abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Over in chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, Beloved, we, are, we now are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, of course, we have no capacity to purify ourselves in ourselves, but we allow the Lord to cleanse us and purify us, and we, we abide in him. We remain in that place with him. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus speaking says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Many of the commands to watch and be ready are in the context of the second coming. But the first act of the second coming is the rapture of the church. This is the day and the time which is unknown. We are to be prepared for his return for us even or especially when we least expect it. This is our hope in this age of growing darkness. He may come for us today. Or it may grow much darker before that day. Watch, pray, and be faithful to his calling. And then verse 8. John says, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Just as John immersed men in water, Jesus will immerse men in the Holy Spirit. Um, we read John 7, 30, 37 through 39. Let's read it again. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2. Then when Peter preached his message, he said concerning that baptism in verse 38 of Acts 2, Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what John said. We got repentance, we got baptism, we got the Holy Spirit. For, he says in verse 39, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The Holy Spirit is for all who believe in the Lord Jesus. 
With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The apostles could lay hands on people who believed and impart the baptism of the Holy Spirit to them. We find this several times. We don't have the authority of the apostles, but we can certainly pray for you if you wish. Jesus is the one who does the baptizing in the Holy Spirit, not any man. And you can go directly to him. He stated in Luke chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 11, he said, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he wants to give the Holy Spirit if we ask him. And he commands that we be filled with the Spirit. So he certainly desires that we be in a position to have that command fulfilled, to be filled with the Spirit. Interesting, Jesus here talks to them and says, if you you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. I mean, making friends and influencing people. <laughs> hey, you evil guys. <laughs> anyway, if you ask him, he will give you the Holy Spirit. Ask him today. The baptism is the initial immersion in the Holy Spirit. But there are subsequent immersions in the Spirit that are referred to as being filled with the Spirit or having the Spirit come upon you. These are synonyms for the baptism of the Spirit. It's different than the indwelling of the Spirit, which happens when you become a believer. If you need a new filling with the Holy Spirit, ask Him. We see the apostles being filled once again in Acts chapter 4 when they had been filled, baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts 3. So you can ask this, knowing that it's his will. First John 5 says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know he hears us. And if he hears us, we know we're going to receive from him that which we've asked. So you can ask, knowing that it's his will, and believe him, take him at his word. So we'll stop there and we'll pick up, Lord willing, uh, in Mark the next time we're together.